0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Crystal Ball. When are the financial markets going to fall?
1: I'm not trying to predict the future.
0: terrible thing so you can't predict the future based on the past
1: but this is not weather forecasting it's completely pointless <laughs> it's, uh, it's just uh, it's just naive
0: you mean the economy is more unpredictable than the weather
1: no economy is not only unpredictable but depends on, on politics
2: I solemnly swear that the testimony you will give before the committee will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The record will indicate that each of the witnesses answered in the affirmative.
3: We are in the midst of a a once-in-a-century credit tsunami. Central banks and governments are being required to take unprecedented measures. Given the financial damage to date, I cannot see how we can avoid a significant rise in layoffs and unemployment.
0: In October 2008, this is Alan Greenspan being hauled in by Congress to explain himself, given that he presided over the run-up to the global financial system going into collapse.
2: You had an ideology, you had a belief, you had the authority to prevent irresponsible lending practices that led to the subprime mortgage crisis, you were advised to do so by many others, and now our whole economy is paying its price. You feel that your ideology pushed you to make
3: decisions that you wish you had not made. To exist you need an ideology. The question is whether it is accurate or not. Yes. I found a flaw. I've been very distressed by that fact. You it found a flaw in a f- a the flaw, reality? A flaw in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works, so to speak. In other words, you found that your, your view of the world, your ideology, was not
2: right. It was I, not it, working. That is, it a, it,
3: precisely. No, I, that's precisely the reason I was shocked, because I have been going for 40 years or more with very considerable evidence that it was working exceptionally well.
0: What is the point of economic models if you can't predict things like economic crises? Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts, Anne and Kevin, the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show,
4: between 5.30 and 6.30pm,
0: here on 3CR Community Community Radio. Radio.
4: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic
0: solutions for the unemployed and underemployed.
4: Everyone everyone in in our our community community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back this Friday, the 27th of August. Anne, how are you doing?
0: Hello, Kevin. How are you?
4: I'm pretty good. Uh, and this week, this week, you've spoken to Dr. Adam Kaczynski.
0: Yes, he's a newly minted doctor of economics who's just done a PhD on the global financial crisis.
4: Well, thank you for that, Anne, because uh, I've had a listen to the interview that you've done with, uh, with Dr. Adam Kaczynski, and you blowing my brain again. So, um, <laughs> nice, nice job.
0: I know he's he's an amazing guy. You know, his day job was actually as an electrical engineer, and then just for fun, his idea of a hobby was to go and model what happened in the GFC and counter some of the mainstream orthodox economists. How is it that we can have thousands of thousands of people going through three-year undergraduate courses at university and coming out at the other end and not being able to see the GFC coming? Like how did that happen?
4: Well, it's a good question, isn't it? What's the point of, of studying economics and then coming up with all this economic modelling mm. if you can't structure something which is going to serve the purposes of the, the economy that you're living in?
0: Mm. But I have to say, Adam completely overturned my understanding of what the point of economic models are. Now, I just assumed that people like Alan Greenspan did not see the GFC coming because they were using the wrong models. So I just assumed that being able to predict things like the GFC was just a case of getting rid of the bad old ideologically driven models and using the shiny new reality driven models. But when I asked Adam Kaczynski about this, he completely shattered my assumptions (laughs) about what you do with economic models. And as you and I know, modern monetary theory has its own idea of Uh, what you would do if you use an economic model and they're always bagging the orthodox models and those orthodox models they're called uh, they've got this name and i just love saying it because i feel like my iq goes up when i say it (laughs) but it's like they're they're these dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models and
4: now just hang on (laughs) hang on Uh, i'm gonna pull (laughs) you up here and it's called a dynamic Stochastic mm-hmm. general equilibrium model, or DSGE, mm. for for sh- for short. Now, Doctor Doctor <laughs> Adam Doctor Adam Kaczynski Doctor Adam talks about these DSGEs quite a lot. Now, if you don't understand what a DSGE is, and I didn't, and I still don't, I'm still trying to get my head around it. <laughs> uh, so, so a DSGE is a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium. Mm. What does that mean? Oh,
0: I've got no idea, Kevin. <laughs> Even after talking to Adam for for a while. And I sort of figure in a way you don't have to know what a DSGE model is. You just have to know that they're out there and that they are what the mainstream or the orthodox economists are using and they're still using them to this day. They're probably still using them to figure out how you get through the COVID and so on. Yeah. I think what happens is that you have this worldview or an ideology and you just have these assumptions. And if you've got these assumptions, then you'll put them into your model. And if these assumptions are wrong, then your model's just basically useless. <laughs> and so these DSGE models are kind of useless, and we need other kinds of models that Adam talks about.
4: So what what, we, what you're saying is that uh, neoclassical and even neo-Keynesian, uh, basically orthodox uh, economists uh, are using this DSGE model about how the economy should run. And what we're learning is that these DSGE models are garbage. And And, and what does this mean? Well, it, it results in things like um, the polarization of wealth, um, the poor getting poorer, the rich getting richer. We've got these orthodox economists telling us that, that um, we're using these models to make the world a better place. And what we're finding is that it's not making the world a better place. It's making the world a worse place.
0: See, one of the ideas that's in these DSGE models is, you know, this word equilibrium. That's the E part. And that means balance. And so it's this assumption that the economy is this natural thing that will just self regulate and self balance. And if we just leave it alone to do its own thing, then it'll just hum along quite happily. Yeah. This idea that. If the economy is made up of people who sell your stuff and people who buy the stuff, that between the two of them, they'll sort of sort it out and everything will just be in balance or equilibrium. It's like market
4: correction. If something is uh, is overpriced, the market will bring it back into balance. And if something's underpriced, they'll they'll bring it up to, to balance. Mm-hmm. But that relies on this assumption that we're all market-driven creatures that we're entrepreneurial and 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 we understand what the what the natural price of something should be mm. but it also then bases the uh, the basic unit of the economy to be this thing called the economic rational man mm. which as we've discussed in previous programs the economic rational man is somebody who wants to work as little as possible to make as much money as possible so we're talking about a lazy <laughs> greedy asshole, <laughs> as, as the basic building block of our economy.
0: That's your, your human that you put into the model. Yeah, so there are two ideas of what a human is and how we all operate and then also what they're working in, which is this equilibrium or this balance.
4: And this is, this is kind of how they build these DSGEs, these, these dynamic stochastic general, general equilibrium, equilibrium models.
0: <laughs> and the other thing about this <sighs> equilibrium stuff is it is completely opposite to what Karl Marx and even eventually Keynes pointed out, which is that capitalism is inevitably going to have a crisis. That's what the Marxists will call these inherent contradictions. So, in fact, if you're building a different kind of model, you're going to start with the assumption that it's not going to go to balance. It's in fact going to fall apart at some point. Yeah. So you can't just leave it to its own devices. You actually need the government (laughs) to step in and keep it on course. Yeah. The people who designed these DSGE models, they were trying to push back at Marx because Marx is essentially saying that your profit-driven system isn't working. And they're saying, well, no, we actually want to make a profit, so we're going to show how it really does work. Yeah.
4: So if Dr. Adam Kaczynski can come up with um, a, a more sophisticated model that might explain the human condition a little bit better than the neo-liberals, I'm all ears.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So let's have a listen to Dr. Adam Kaczynski. Welcome to the show, Adam.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I understood that you focused on the GFC, the global financial crisis of 2007-8, and your PhD.
1: Yes, because it was easy. <laughs> I wanted to... Uh, okay, so Steve Keen built a collection of models based on so-called Goodwin cycle model. Goodwin, who uh, was a Marxist mathematical economist mm-hmm. to show the economic cycle. But I disagreed with his approach, and I wanted to do the same thing, in my opinion, right. So, so I started working on it, and at some point of time, someone told me, oh, you could do a PhD based on this. And I was very happy to start working in a more formal way.
0: Okay, so is this what Steve calls his Minsky software?
1: Yes, yeah. And it is, in my opinion, still supply-side driven. Because in this model, it is basically the situation when workers demand too much wages, which leads to lower investment and lowers the growth. Mm. The uh, approach, which is based on a Goodwin growth model, is uh, not capturing the so-called surplus value realisation problem. Marx was arguing that there would be a crisis because people will not be able to buy all the products made by capitalists, and therefore some profits will not be realized.
5: Mm -hmm.
1: So the problem of uh, having not enough aggregate demand to realize profit.
0: Adam mentions Marx's surplus value realization problem, which is one of these terrific catch-22s. I mean, just think about it. Imagine the total price of everything for sale in the economy is the cost of all the labour and the cost of all the materials plus whatever all the profit is. But the total dollars that all the workers have to spend is whatever they got for their labour. So the cost of everything is always going to be way more than what all the workers can afford.
4: Yeah, and then they say, um, okay, so how the worker who can't afford the markups, how they're going to afford to buy these products is by borrowing from the private sector because everything Mm -hmm. needs to be driven by the private sector.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: And so then you end up with something like the GFC. That's
0: where they go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Adam, I was just wondering, for those who don't really know what an economist is doing all day when they're staring at their computer screen, could you explain to us just what a model is? What's modelling and why do economists even use models?
1: Well, I would say that economic models are like any other models used in science and technology. They are simplified representations of the reality. In economics, these are usually simplified mathematical uh, frameworks, which uh, only capture uh, several aspects of the macroeconomic reality, that is the aspects of human society satisfying our material needs. So I would say that there are two aspects of building models. Mm -hmm. First, we have to simplify the reality, and then there's a process of selection of data. So I would say that economic models are nothing special. They are like models of weather, for example, used for forecasting. Models of uh, like an aeroplane, for example, used for testing. But uh, obviously economists think that they can use a different methodology to what is considered to be normal in empirical science and in technology, which I would uh, tend to disagree.
0: That's saying something. I was just thinking then you wouldn't want to use a DSG model to test your aeroplane, would you?
1: (laughs) Well, precisely because there's something special about these G models, but in order to unpick the mystery, we need to go a little bit through the history of economic thought. Okay if we do not go through the whole history, we will not understand what these G is, is about. Mm-hmm. These models are basically the pinnacle of neoclassical school of thought from late 19th century, which uh, it, it was considered as a response to Marx and to Georges in the US. Mm. So the main principle of neoclassical school of thought is the assumption that Exchange values of products are not determined by costs, but they are determined by marginal factors. So, so basically, there is a marginal theory of value, and it is the marginal utility. So, how much we value something, which determines the cost. Mm-hmm. So, these concepts um, uh, are from late 19th century, but uh, it was basically the critique of Marx and his labor theory of value, Mm. which gave birth to the whole neoclassical approach. So on top of this, we have neoclassical growth models, which were built in uh, the mid-20th century, which uh, would basically model the growth of the economy based on the optimal allocation of resources between current consumption and future investment. So the neoclassical growth model basically solves the problem of optimal planning, how much of what we currently produce should be set aside as invested as means of production, so that our rate of growth of the economy is optimal. Mm -hmm. Then on top of this, it keeps
0: getting worse and worse, but keep going.
1: (laughs) So the next layer, it is a neoclassical growth model, uh, when we have an individual, a representative agent, which is maximizing its um, utility function. So the uh, objective of the agent is to allocate labor and leisure time and allocate current consumption and saving, which is equal to investment, in such a way that it uh, gives the optimal path. So there's an assumption that agents maximize their utility over the whole uh, infinite lifespan. <laughs> the original model was actually developed in late 20s with Ramsey, with uh, some aid uh, from Keynes. <laughs> but uh, it became kind of mainstream in the uh, 1950s. And again, it is taught to students of economics. Mm. So the main feature of this neoclassical growth model is that we are solving an optimization problem. It is it is not reflecting the real world where we have usually deficient demand. It is it is solving a problem of production and allocation of resources.
0: So that comes back down to the question that they're asking. It seems like the question that they're asking is how do we optimize the use of resources? and not so much as why, for example, do we have idle resources, as in unemployment.
1: Absolutely. But this is not the end of the story. There are two more layers. It's
0: getting worse and worse. <laughs> okay.
1: Yes. What was uh, done in the 70s and 80s, uh, mainstream economists, neoclassical economists, developed real business cycle uh, model, which is basically a model, uh, the neoclassical growth model, with introduction of stochastic disturbances, uh, shocks, supply-side shocks, usually in productivity. Mm. These models were not very good at describing the reality, so finally, they tried to introduce elements of Keynesian thought. And this is basically the DSGE, Dynamic Stochastic General Equilibrium approach. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is that the amount of this knowledge required to understand the terms used there, that people do not know how to critique this approach. Mm. It is something which students have to cram for years to use this framework, but for people who are not initiated, this uh, looks like something so complex, so mind-boggling, that it has to be true science. <laughs> right. But we need to look at the assumptions. Mm it is possible to add so-called frictions and market imperfections. So we can introduce financial markets in a simplified way. We can introduce the frictions on the labor market. We can try to understand the phenomenon of unemployment by adding distortions from the optimal market, ideal market, uh, which would clear, and real markets do not clear. And uh, basically, this is still all a derivative of the original neoclassical growth model, but very overcomplicated and looking very scientific. What
0: you've helped with then is a great leap forward in economics to actually make it more of a science again rather than an ideology.
1: (laughs) I don't know. uh, You can say that I am driven by ideology, by this state to neoliberalism, but, you know. (laughs) They read read too much of Bill Mitchell, for example. (laughs) Maybe, yeah, maybe... (laughs)
0: It seems to me Adam is saying that neoclassical economics began with an ideological aim which was to counter what Karl Marx had revealed about the exploitation of workers and also what Henry George had revealed about the capture of land value by the elites and both of these remain unresolved issues to this day. In the meantime... A lot of effort has been expended to arrive at these DSGE models, which Adam describes as not very scientific.
2: You had an ideology.
0: Henry Waxman, Democrat from California, as chairman of the US House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, pushing Alan Greenspan to admit he was in error.
2: Over and over again, ideology trumped governance. Our regulators became enablers rather than enforcers. Their trust in the wisdom of the markets was infinite. The mantra became, government regulation is wrong, the market is infallible.
0: I think of DSGE models as sitting like the evil eye of Soren at the very centre of this orthodox economic thinking by the likes of Alan Greenspan. As you were saying, you know, these DSGE models are highly questionable, but of course they're so impenetrable to the average person that it's very hard to question them. I did come across a quote by Dr. Stephen Hale, where he described current DSG models as a colossal waste of time and intellectual effort. (laughs) Would you agree with that?
1: Of course. Mm. And we need to unfortunately quote Marx. Marx uh, rejected libertarianism, the fundamental disagreement about uh, what's driving human behavior, what's driving the behavior of rich people. Marx wrote in the first volume of Capital, the behavioral goals of some of the economic agents who are capitalists is the accumulation of wealth. It's just getting rich at the cost of personal sacrifice and by exploiting other agents. So capitalists do not maximize uh, the discounted utility to maximize consumption. Mm -hmm. And uh, Keynes obviously did not like Marx but he was also pointing to the fact that some people are driven by the goal of acquiring wealth. Now, it's a very simple question. If I want to get rich, what should I do? First thing, I should consume as little as possible. Then, if it's possible, I should invest. Well, if I am not able to invest for profit, because there are no profitable enterprises I can invest, then I should just hold money. Mm. This picture is fully consistent with modern social psychology and anthropology. And here we understand why rich people spend so little. Poor people, the bottom 40%, would spend pretty much all the disposable income. Mm. But if we look at the richest 1%, the marginal propensity to, to consume is quite low most of the income they have, they just hoard. It's not spent. So this explains why we have deficient aggregate demand.
0: Right.
1: It is not a friction. It is, it is not abnormal. This is not a deviation from rationality. There is nothing irrational in the behavior of Warren Buffett. <laughs> There's nothing irrational in the behavior of Bill Gates.
0: <laughs> so, So just to make this really concrete, An effect of not understanding this psychology of people is that you would say, oh, so if we give more money to rich people, we'll get the economy going again. Whereas if you had a different model which looks at this difference between the behaviour of rich people and poor people, then you would say, no, we need to give the money to the poor people because that will create the demand that will get the economy going.
1: Yes, uh, what is assumed by the rich people who uh, are very happy to see uh, mainstream economics so widely accepted is that they say that we need to have more money so that we can invest more and if we invest more the economy uh, will recover or will grow faster.
0: There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programmes. 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts it's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts of course we're also on twitter at 3CR and instagram at 3CR Melbourne but don't forget our mighty AM band catch us anytime on 855 AM keep in touch freecr.org.au In which Anne interviews Dr Adam Kaczynski and learns it is not the purpose of scientific models to make predictions. In fact, scientific types hate being asked to predict anything but they will use their models to forecast possible outcomes. Why were the DSGE models unable to predict the GFC? Why did they not see it coming?
1: Well, because it's uh, not in the framework. We uh, only put certain components of the system into the model.
0: And which bit was not in the model? The financial system?
1: (laughs) No, no, it was there. But uh, it was not anticipated that such a shock would emerge. Mm -hmm. I would just say that uh, these aspects have been ignored away and nobody wanted to look into what would have happened if there had been such a big disruption. Mm. If we look at stock-flow consistent modeling, Mm -hmm. it is a a different approach. Okay, It's a different approach, it's more primitive, related to older uh, models which were built in the 1950s, 1960s.
0: These are the version of models that you were looking at in your work and you were building on those.
1: Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Stock flow consistent modelling, I, w- I would say that we are offering a methodology which is similar to what is used in empirical science in, and in technology. So stock flow consistent modelling is exactly the same methodology as is used in modelling of chemical processes. So if we look at financial models... We want to uh, simulate the development of a single firm. We built an integrated financial model, which consists of income statements, balance sheet, and cash flow statements. We built a stock flow consistent modeling as a collection of linked balance sheets of various sectors of the economy at a macro level. And balance sheets obviously contain values of stocks. So we have flows and stocks. Mm. An example of a flow is disposable income. So how much money flows into my pocket every month?
0: That's a flow.
1: Yeah, and and stock is how much savings I have or it can be the value of, of my house.
0: So that's when the money sort of has accumulated and it's just sitting there.
1: At the heart of the whole thing is the consumption function. And we assume that agents... Consume a certain fraction of current disposable income. So basically, they deplete the stock of wealth by a certain fraction in one month or one year. So so there's a flow generated by the value of stock. Mm -hmm. Now, the Lucas critique, which is very important because this was a paradigm change in the 1970s, so it was stated that it is naive to try to predict the effects of changes in economic policy based on the relationships observed historical data
0: well that's a terrible thing so you can't predict the future based on the past
1: i'm not trying to predict the future i doubt that we can do it and i will i will demonstrate this in a while
0: wow that's amazing
1: i want to understand the word i may give some recommendations yeah but this is not weather forecasting it's completely pointless <laughs> it's uh, it's just uh, it's just naive
0: you mean the economy is more unpredictable than the weather
1: no, economy is not only unpredictable, but depends on on politics. Mm. The whole the whole oil crisis was sparked by Israeli Arab war. Right. What would have happened if Golda Meir dropped nukes? She was very close. It was one of the turning point uh, points of history. Mm. And then Americans had to help. Well, this basically led to oil embargo. This this was the thing which sparked uh, stagflation. So there was a political phenomenon. Yeah. We don't know when the bubble passed. Do we know when the value of Bitcoin falls to its fundamental value, which is equal to zero? <laughs> no, we don't know. At some point of time, some country will say using Bitcoin is forbidden and therefore you will not buy your favorite white powder for Bitcoin and that's it.
0: Ah, oh dear, we're not going to come to you to get our insider trading on the Bitcoins.
1: But I'm very sceptical about using models for forecasting. And we can look at forecasts made in the fourth quarter of 2019, referring to main probabilities of real GDP growth in 2020. And it was anticipated that the growth will be 1 to 1.9%. And the probability of the growth being below minus 3% simply did not appear on the graph. If we fast forward to 2020, well, it shifted because of the COVID. <laughs> Real GDP growth in 2020 was minus 6 to minus 8.1. So this is how much this methodology is worth. As an engineer, I can say this is just not working. <laughs> What's the point of making predictions if, if it's just garbage? <laughs> so making statements about the probability of our GDP growth in 2023 being between 2 and 3% is, in my opinion, simply not scientific. Mm. Macroeconomic processes are, in my opinion, driven by two main factors. One is the long run growth of productive forces using Marx's term, the overall development of, of human civilization. And this obviously includes also environmental factors. Mm-hmm. The second driving force It's just politics.
0: So you're saying it's a fool's errand to try and predict how the macroeconomy will work without taking into account politics, which is almost completely unpredictable because it's the way events unfold.
1: Absolutely. I think that we should be much more humble in regards to what economists can predict. They can simulate various scenarios, and if the models are correctly calibrated, it is very useful to aid government policies.
0: So that's a distinction between predicting and planning.
1: Well, it is possible to do some short-term focus, but these are mostly based on the interpolation of what has already happened. And we can say, if nothing changes, then the economy will grow at a certain pace. And uh, we can use this for policy evaluation.
0: Would you say then that there would have been no model that could have predicted the GFC?
1: Certainly the way economists who predicted uh, a big downturn. Nobody predicted the magnitude. Nobody anticipated uh, the political reaction because what Ben Bernanke did was actually quite good. Mm. Uh, Let's uh, think about what would have happened if they repeated the mistakes from 1929. Then we would have had uh, another Great Depression.
0: So what happened in 1929?
1: Well, in 1929, basically, they removed liquidity. They wanted the economy to heal uh, itself. Hmm. If we think about the COVID uh, crisis, the responses in most of the countries were actually correct in the sense that a large stimulus was applied. The economy was put on a kind of artificial life support So that uh, there are no persistent job losses in these sectors, which must be shut down because of the public health reasons. So, for example, the fact that we did not completely close down all the hotels, all the airlines is just because of the government intervention. And this intervention, we can, we can argue whether it was of the right size or the right time and whatever, but I think that it actually worked. Mm -hmm. So we cannot anticipate something like COVID.
4: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. A show all about the economics and experience
0: of unemployment and underemployment. Here
4: on 3CR Community Radio.
0: So it seems there is a bit of a catch-22 with these models. Your model is not going to give you the economic shock. Like when banks all of a sudden stop lending as with the financial meltdown of the GFC, you have to put it in your model. And you won't put it in your model if you're not expecting it. And you won't expect it if you believe the economy tends towards equilibrium. Whereas Adam began by putting in the shock, and then he could see how the financial crisis would impact the real economy. Of course, he was working with hindsight. But he could explain the behaviour of the economy afterwards. What is the point of a model if we can't predict things?
1: So the goals of modelling, I would say the first, the primary goal of building models is understanding the processes. By being able to look at causation, we are dealing with something which is called in modern science as emergent phenomena. Mm. First, let's define emergent phenomena. So we have a complex system consisting of simple parts. I mean, the behavior of individual parts is described by quite simple behavioral rules. Mm -hmm. If we combine all these components, we can suddenly see, in some cases, an emergence of something much more complex. If we look at humans, human agents, we can say that Certain elements of human behavior, which uh, have economic meaning, are not that complex. Mm. But when we look at the human society, at the interaction of individuals building a human society, the emergence of social classes, the distribution of wealth, this is something which we can call an emergent phenomenon. Right. For example, what is the market? How do prices form? The formation of prices, it is something which we would call an emergent phenomenon. Mm. For example, inflation is a very good example of an emergent phenomenon. And there are multiple theories trying to explain it.
5: Mm.
1: And now I would say that, that most of people don't understand or misunderstand macroeconomic processes. For example, one of the core statements made by MMT scholars is that in the era of fiat money, Governments do not need to acquire pre-existing financial resources in order to spend. The government does not need to borrow money, to borrow pre-existing money in order to spend. Right. And this also corresponds to something uh, about the banking sector. Banks do not lend uh, reserves and they do not lend out deposits. It is the lending process which is creating savings. Mm -hmm. That's why we need to build models in order to understand these processes so we are not completely misguided, for example, in making statements that the government has to return the budget to surplus because otherwise we'll not have a, a buffer against the future shocks or whatever.
0: We've said this before on the show, so yes, that's where we're coming from.
1: So that's why we need models. Because we need to show that the economy might work as in the model, not like in the other model. We can argue about this. We can we can consider various scenarios.
0: How would you answer the um, the claim by Warren Mosler, who's one of the founders of MMT, that inflation is basically a result of what the government is prepared to pay for something?
1: Well, about Warren Mosler, I would say that this was obviously one of his golden thoughts. <laughs> I would say that there is some point in what he said, that basically if we look at the situation when government is paying certain prices for certain products of the private sector Mm. or sets the price of labor, Mm. which is very important, then obviously it has very dramatic uh, impact on the inflationary processes. And the question is whether we can do it in a capitalist uh, market economy, because I would say that some people will not be very happy if suddenly uh, there are certain decisions made about how much they can earn, for example. Mm-hmm. So if the government sets the price of labor, well, we will we have what was in the old uh, Soviet economy, which I remember quite well, because <laughs> I grew up in a, a real socialism. So, oh, okay. And the, when they were trying to lower real wages, workers were rebelling and they had to shoot them, basically, in Poland. So
0: mm. so, so, what country are you from originally? I'm
1: uh, from Poland.
0: Oh, so you've had a taste of the socialist and the capitalist economies.
1: (laughs) Well, I wouldn't call it socialism. I would say it was a degenerate product of Stalinism. Mm. Uh, I would say Stalinism destroyed the idea of socialism uh, in Western world.
0: Yeah, we have to make those distinctions.
1: Yeah, and and what happened after 1956 was that they uh, stopped terrorizing people. You could do whatever you wanted as long as you stayed uh, silent it was not a socialist system. It was a kind of state capitalism with some elements of socialism and top-down control, not a market system, despite the fact that people were given money and they could buy products, but prices were fixed in most of the cases. Mm. But it didn't fail because of uh, the failure of central planning. In my opinion, it failed at a micro scale. There was no way to improve productivity because people were not motivated. People just didn't care. Basically, people were not pushed and terrorized to work. So they stopped working because they were they were not paid enough uh, to be happy mm-hmm. and working more would not mean being paid more.
5: Right.
1: It failed precisely because of the same reason neoclassical economics is wrong. Mm. Because it was assumed that workers just want to have their basic needs met. You give people this much of this, that much of that, and everyone will be happy, everyone will be working, utilitarian approach Mm. the thing which was completely dysfunctional it was the management of companies people were promoted for exceeding the plan often at a cost of quality there was no need there was no desire to introduce new technologies what for? what is the point of dabbling with something which may not work Mm. it was not only about not taking the risk but it was about punishing people who wanted to do things in, in their own way Some people wanted more, and they only could get more, either by stealing or joining the Communist Party and uh, (laughs) becoming a part of the system, or the best way was just to go to the West and earn some hard currency and whatever. (laughs) So the system was based on the application of misunderstood ideology, Mm. which uh, I would say was quite far away from what Marx would have imagined. So it is not about lack of competition. Lack of competition was one of the elements, but it was basically, the system was like a, a full implementation of optimal control. But the control was not optimal because they forgot about emergent phenomena.
3: I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle. And you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3 CR. CR.
0: What was the size and the shape of the GFC? Like, what were we dealing with back in 2007?
1: Well, GFC was first considered to be a crisis of the financial system, and then it spilled over to the real economy. And in some places, there were quite severe losses of GDP and quite high spikes of unemployment rate. And the problems caused by the GFC lingered for a very long period of time, in some places, especially in Europe, which are still coping with the results of mismanagement, which happened after the GFC. So the magnitude was not as bad as the Great Depression of 1930s. Mm. Australia avoided going into technical recession. So I would say that my point of view is that we should concentrate less on the triggers more look at the transmission mechanisms and how this disruption in the financial sector spilled over to the real economy.
0: That seems like it is the big question. And just before we go into that, can you just describe what we mean when we say the real economy and the financial economy?
1: If we look into the production of goods and services, this is the real economy. We need to get goods, we need to get Uh, services, we provide labour. The financial system plays a very significant role because um, we live in a financial economy. We may not want to think about it, but this economy is based on the flow of money as uh, the means to obtain goods and services. So if there is a problem with the financial sector, the flow of labour goods and services may be disrupted. Mm. In the post-Keynesian world, money is the fundamental component of the economic system because we concentrate on deficient aggregate demand rather than on the inability of the production sector to provide goods and services. Mm. So the main difference in the Keynesian or Kaleckian approach, and also I would say Marxist approach, is um, that We can assume that we have spare productive capacities, we have spare labour, and we can produce more if more is demanded. But people may not be able to demand more goods and services because they don't have enough money.
0: So that's where money connects in with the real economy. So the real economy is all the stuff we can touch, taste and see and all the services like, you know, having a massage. Um And then if we introduce the idea of demand, that's where we're going to connect the real economy with the nominal economy or the pricing and the, and the money.
1: And, and I would say that the main factor here is that looking at the GFC, prior to GFC, a lot of spending was financed by increasing debt. Mm. Let's say I want to pay at a petrol station with my credit card. I pay, let's say, $50.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Where does money come from? Where does it come from? Was it stored on my credit card? No.
0: It's a loan.
1: The bank has extended the credit loan for $50. This $50 of spending power has been created out of nowhere when I was paying for petrol. Right. So it is exactly the same thing as with mortgages. And there was a huge flow of money from the finance sector Freshly created spending power, which was stimulating the economy prior to the GFC. And then it suddenly halted a year before GFC because of the seizure of the finance system, because of the bank bankruptcies. This was the actual financial crisis. Mm. So the process leading to the GFC was the breakdown of the financial system, increased borrowing by banks and investors, regulation and policy errors. And then what we had is U.S. house prices fell, borrowers missed repayment, and stress in the financial system, spillovers to other countries. The Ponzi schema based on housing flopped.
0: So we can identify the causes, but what we can't do is say exactly when those causes are going to come together to have the actual collapse. Absolutely. So what was your work adding to the story of the GFC that um, was countering some of the other heterodox economists?
1: Well, I was actually trying to demonstrate, to build a dynamic model, how this uh, seizure of the financial sector spilled over to the real economy. And uh, it looks at two components. One component is spending, which was financed by mortgage loans, Uh, dropped significantly. And the second factor are wealth effects. The people were much less inclined to spend when they expected stock of wealth collapsed. So then people basically thought, oh, I'm not as uh, rich as I was. I need to worry. I may go bankrupt. Therefore, I'm not going to spend as much as I used to. Mm. So these two factors led to a fall in aggregate demand, which was partially counteracted by the stimulus introduced by Obama. And as I said, per Bernanke, who managed to salvage the, the banking sector and uh, stopped the crisis on its tracks from becoming a major depression. Mm. So I tried to combine these elements together in a stock-flow dynamic model, but the element of novelty is that I disaggregated households onto workers and capitalists, or middle class. And this explains certain things which were difficult to explain earlier. Mm -hmm. An interesting thing is uh, the secular stagnation story. So basically we say, if the unemployment is high, the growth of productivity halts. Companies have not much incentive to introduce new technologies when nobody wants to buy products. Mm -hmm. If we combine this with uh, the story of income distribution, from the pool towards the rich, which actually happened well from the from the 80s when Ronald Reagan introduced his so-called uh, reforms right the economy started working in a slightly different manner because prior to uh, these changes in 1970s, the economy was pretty much not far away from full uh, employment, even without the government, running large deficits. Mm. And uh, after all these changes, because of the the redistribution of income towards the rich, who have much higher saving propensity due to a different behavior, and then the only way to run the economy close to full utilization was to allow for the rise of private debt. Mm. So first, it was the dot-com bubble, which was allowed to run its course. And then, after that, Greenspan basically lowered interest rates and he encouraged speculation in in housing. Mm. And we can say that the economy is stimulated pretty much in the same way by the government running budget deficits and by the private sector borrowing by rising mortgage debt. The problem is that the private sector cannot increase the stock of debt uh, infinitely. Because at some point of time, people have to start repaying the debt and basically paying interest. At some point of time, this thing saturates or breaks down. Mm. So secular stagnation is a result of income distribution towards the rich. And it was only masked by the dot-com bubble and then by the housing bubble. Mm. And afterwards, we had a situation where basically we all saw that the emperor was naked. (laughs) And then then Donald Trump started stimulating again.
0: So the little part that you bit off to Chew (laughs) is show what the heterodox economists and other commentators who are now pointing the finger at this increasing gap between rich and poor, you've been able to model that and show that, yes, that is exactly what leads to a situation like the GFC.
1: So it is not a proof, Mm -hmm. but it gives us some kind of confidence that we can think about uh, these dynamic processes in terms of income distribution and impact of capacity utilization on the growth of of productivity. Mm -hmm. The model is extremely simple. It's just the interaction between two types of households who consume and may not consume, and basically the government which is purchasing goods and services on the market. Mm. It is the government, it is the overall political system which allowed for the growth of the financial sector. Mm. I would say that the underlying cycle is driven by politics.
0: In what way can stock flow consistent models help us get the economy going again after the COVID pandemic recession?
1: Well, we can work on uh, developing more robust models. For example, introducing regional labour markets and uh, looking at the introduction of job guarantee. Mm -hmm. Things which uh, are very difficult to look at from a mainstream perspective. That is, for example, what will happen if there is an unconditional offer to people living in regional areas that they will get a job from the government such as looking after the environment or looking after the society and we cannot expect everyone to move to sydney or melbourne Mm -hmm. we could look into how this would impact the overall situation of the economy
0: so do you see in the economics field, a lot of interest in those kind of questions? Are there a lot of people who would be interested in modelling how a job guarantee might impact the economy?
1: I'm afraid uh, this idea is not popular because some people don't want this to happen because they want to have a reserved army of labour and they want to blame people they cannot find jobs and they want to blame people to take responsibility for the fact that they were born uh, at the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: (laughs) At least we have some economics that could help us get to full employment without inflation. And there are folks like you out there, Adam, who have an interest in this.
1: Uh, I think the main argument is that if an average working class American discovers that the living conditions in China are far better then then uh, neoliberal capitalism is finished as an ideology mm. and uh, an alternative must be found.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, you said you don't do predictions, Adam, but that's a great one.
1: <laughs> it's my hope. It's not prediction. I might be wrong.
0: Well, there's the difference between hope and predictions, people. Adam, I thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you.
4: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back here on 3CR Community Radio what was really interesting was Alan Greenspan
0: Alan Greenspan of course he presided over the lead up to the global financial crash cuz he was in there as the uh, chairman of the US central bank or the federal reserve he was there for 20 years 20 years
4: and, and he basically says ah oh, i got it wrong
0: sorry mm, yeah oops <laughs> <laughs> that was his oops what? moment
4: <laughs> oops moment which which was the, this is the lead up to the the, the GFC uh-huh. and and he goes Oh, yeah, no, I uh, got that wrong. Hmm. Sorry about crashing the world economy.
0: Yep. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the GFC explained why the capitalist model doesn't work. Uh, and <laughs> and we, we were told so many times that we're going to learn from this and we learnt nothing. <laughs> we didn't apply any of the lessons. We just keep on repeating them.
0: Uh, and that's why we do this show, Kevin, to show that there is a different way of looking at the economy so that we can learn the lessons of history. And in fact, Adam had a few interesting things to say about some historical moments, not just the GFC, which had to do with that era of the post-World War II, the 50s and 60s and 70s, where it was an era of full employment, which means that there was essentially no involuntary unemployment and the rate was at about one to two percent. But Adam actually answered this conundrum, which I hadn't quite kind of thought about before, which is, How on earth did we have a full employment economy back in that era when we were on a gold standard? Because as we've talked about before on this show, when you're on a gold standard, that limits how much the government can spend. And another way of saying that is they have small deficits. So the government had to have small deficits in that era because we were on a gold standard. And yet also somehow we had full employment. And these days, economists are telling us, well, if we want full employment, we're going to have to have big deficits. The government's going to have to do a lot of spending. And so Adam pointed out, well, the reason that we've now moved into a world where we need big deficits to have full employment is because of this unequal distribution of the national income. So all the money that is being made as the economy grows and gets more productive Since the 1970s, more of that has been given to the rich people and less of that's been given to the average worker and the poorer people. And it's that redistribution that means the government actually has to spend more in order to keep the economy going and in order to get to full employment because the rich people don't spend their money, they hoard it yeah <laughs> so their money's not going back into the economy, so I thought that was quite fascinating I mean I'm obviously turning into an economics nerd here because I just loved hearing how Adam's uh, model could explain some of the things that are going on
4: so if we then start delving into Are the more, I don't know, more sensible models?
0: Well, models that have something to do with reality. The DSGE models have nothing, nothing to do with the reality of how people operate or how the economy works when you look at how groups of people operate. And so the reality that Adam looked at is this, they call it interlocking balance sheets, which is a, a head spin as well. But all it means is literally what is happening on the ground with the money How is the money flowing between different companies or between households and companies? Well,
4: that's a better model that understands human nature better. And
0: I think the point is that we know it's a better model because it can explain things. It's not so much that it's predicting, although it can tell you what possibly will happen, but it can explain what's gone on in the past and it can explain what's happening now. It could explain things like why could we have full employment with lower deficits, and it can explain what's going on now, which is why do we have stagnant growth, which is known as secular stagnation. So it's that explanatory power is what his models bring because they're based in reality. They're not based in those crazy ideas of equilibrium and the rational agent. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au He sort of asked the question that I asked, you know, when I was living in the United States and I would walk through this neighborhood that was hit particularly badly by the GFC and there was just one for sale sign after the other on all these houses. Like it wasn't as though people didn't still need a house to live in, but somehow people could no longer be in those houses. And I'm like, what on earth's going on?
4: Yeah. How'd that happen?
0: So Adam, he was able to show how what they call the financial collapse, which happened a year before we saw the effects of the GFC. So the banking system suddenly seized up. It was like having no oil in your engine and the engine just suddenly stops running. And then somehow that spilled over a year later into a whole lot of people becoming unemployed and being kicked out of their homes. And he showed that the link there between how the financial system can impact what they call the real economy, so the actual place where you and I are living in and doing our buying and selling and working or whatever, he was able to show that the way those two things link, it comes back to this idea of demand, aggregate demand. And so there were two things going on where demand suddenly stopped and that included people getting worried. They could see that uh, the banking system had seized up and so they were just holding on to their money and not spending it. And you know, the, the image that came to me when Adam was describing that was how traffic jams work. So have you ever driven along the highway and you're just crawling along for hours and hours and then finally you crawl past where there was obviously a traffic accident There's nothing there. There's just a bit of glass on the road or whatever. And then you keep crawling past that and gradually the traffic starts speeding up and you keep going again. Yeah. So there's been a traffic accident. And what happens is that everyone slows down just to be cautious and also out of curiosity because they're gawking a bit. And because everyone slows down, there's this what Adam was calling emergent phenomenon. The emergent phenomenon is that all the traffic backs up and the whole thing jams up into a crawl. And I was thinking about how with the GFC, it was as though Alan Greenspan was saying, you know what, I think we need to deregulate so that people can get from A to B as fast as they can. So we're going to take off the speed limit and everyone can drive as fast as they want to get from A to B. And in fact, in the run up to the GFC, they're going like, drive faster, drive faster. And they're assuming that they won't drive so fast that they're not going to make it from A to B. He was assuming that the self-preservation instinct of the banks would be that they wouldn't drive so fast that they're going to crash.
4: He's presuming that everybody's a really good driver uh, and that the roads are all uh, brilliant and so that there won't be uh, a problem. There's, There's a lot of presumptions there.
0: Yeah, so everyone would just naturally get to where they're going if you just let them all drive at whatever speed they wanted.
4: It's like you've all got your F1 F one cars that can go 400 kilometres an hour. They're all built to, to go brilliantly. This is a really nice road. Um, uh, off you go. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong?
0: <laughs> what could possibly go wrong in that scenario, exactly? <laughs> and, of course, what went wrong is there's a whole bunch of pileups. Yeah. And... Um, Everyone who wasn't involved in the pileup ends up crawling along and not getting from A to B. So it's almost like the unemployment and the housing thing. So the real economy couldn't function because now we had all these pileups in the financial economy.
4: Dr. Adam Kaczynski also talks about how it's almost impossible to come up with proper modeling, uh, economic modeling anyway, um, uh, because of politics, because of events?
0: Well, I think it's not that you can't come up with models that are accurate and useful. It's just that the whole point of a model is not to make a prediction. And it took me a while to get my head around that. And I think about how the climate science works. The climate scientists, they're going to create models that will say, yes, it's highly likely we're going to have global warming. And as a result, we're going to have more storms and more bushfires and more floods but their models are not going to say, okay, on the 14th of May, we're going to have a flood through this town. They don't do exact predictions. It's not foretelling. It's just showing you what's likely to happen.
4: So we're talking more about trends.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Mm. So,
4: you know, you get these idiots that say, I oh, see, look, it's it's really cold now. It hasn't been this cold for ages. Uh, therefore, your, your whole uh, climate warming theory is wrong. And you go, I do. Look, we've had the... Ten of the hottest years on record occurred in the last 15 years. You, You can see a trend there.
0: Yeah. So like with the coronavirus pandemic, nobody was going to predict that the economy would suddenly shut down in 2020. But if you have the right model, what you do know is that if for some reason, whatever reason it is, the economy stops, like it can be that 2008 global financial crisis where the banks all suddenly stopped lending or it could be 2020 where nobody can go to work anymore because they have to stay safe at home, then your model will say, a good model, the kind of model that Adam uses, will say, well, that's going to interrupt your demand. And if your demand's interrupted, the only entity that can step in and keep the demand going is the federal government because they're the currency issuer. So they can keep putting money into the system and giving people an income.
4: And even even our neoliberal uh, dickhead government at the moment <laughs> understands this because they've introduced what you don't do is austerity. You don't say... Oh goodness, the, the economy's not behaving very well. We need to stop everything.
0: Can you imagine in the nineteen twenties they spent less?
4: There has been some progress. Even even the conservative Orthodox economists understand that you need to you need government support for a stall in your economy and they know this because when we did it during the GFC it worked. It worked. Now that we have a, an even worse situation with the uh, economic stall that's happened from the coronavirus, we know that it works, so you, you do it even more, and, and they did it even more. Even though the same dickheads who said that we shouldn't do it during the GFC, they criticised Rudd and Gillard.
0: Who saved us from going into a recession.
4: But um, I think we're coming to the end of the show again, Anne. We've
0: Whole hour's flown by, Kim. Flown
4: by. <laughs> um, uh, but we've got to make way for Mafalda, who's coming up next. So we'll see you again in a couple of weeks' time.
0: we will see you then, Kevin. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
4: Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR.
0: Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au.
4: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne.
0: And I thank you, Kevin. No,
4: no, the pleasure was all mine.
0: Oh no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine.
4: You mean all the pleasure was yours?
0: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one.
4: <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite want to myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure?
0: I think we should share the pleasure.
4: <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure That's this have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable,
0: so I'm glad that it was pleasurable.